If you take notes, I'm speaking about that, the pursuit of happiness. Anyone watch that movie? It's a good one. I think it's, it's a good one. There's a lot of positive lessons you can learn from that movie. And, uh, and this morning, what I want to do is take stock a little bit. Taking stock, if you've ever worked in retail, is, is basically doing an assessment of what you've got um, and, uh, and seeing if it lines up with what you should have and then making some adjustments if it doesn't. And uh, so that's exactly what we're doing today. We're taking stock, and uh, we're taking stock of stuff today. And that's why the million dollars ties in with the stuff. I want to read a portion of Scripture now, which comes from 1 Timothy, and it speaks to this. And uh, hopefully it will become clearer and make more sense as we go along. Let's read this. Some people may contradict our teaching, This is Paul writing to Timothy, one of his young uh, up-and-comings, leading a church. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us, with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Maybe that's been you at one stage of your life, or maybe you know someone who that's true for, where the love of stuff has just led them way off course, where they used to be following a, what, we, what the Bible calls the straight and narrow, what we phrased as the straight and narrow, people who are following God wholeheartedly, and somewhere along the line, their desires and their heart shifted. Now, I'm not sure if there's anyone like that this morning, but this morning's about taking stock. So it's about assessing that. Because I don't think there's anyone in the room who would say, oh, that's me, I love money. I'm definitely headed down the wrong path. Money's all I live for. I doubt that anyone in here would just say that. But sometimes that way of thinking manifests itself in the way that you're living and the way that you're thinking and the way that you're speaking. Um, So even if you don't say it, outright. Sometimes it's there. And all of us, I think, have our own definition of happiness. That was me in my glory days. No, it isn't. (laughs) Everyone's looking at the faces. Definitely wasn't me. But happiness for most people is always over the next hurdle. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's always just after the next thing that I need to do. As soon as I finish school, oh, life begins. As soon as I finish my studies and I get a job, oh, that's when you know things are really going to start happening. That's when I'll be happy. When I'm out of my parents' house, that's when I'm going to be happy. As soon as I've met a partner that I can share my life with, that's when I'm going to be happy. 
as soon as I get that promotion, I'm stuck in this job now, and it's horrible, and the boss is a beep, and uh, I've got to get through this grind week after week. As soon as I can get a promotion or get a better job, happiness is waiting for me over there. As soon as I can get out of Hrafrenet, I'm just suffocating in the small town. As soon as I can get into the city, as soon as I can get out there in the real world, things are going to be happy. I'm going to be happy. As soon as I'm healthy, I've had this thing that's been troubling me for a little while. But as soon as I'm healthy, I can start to finally be happy. But you know what? It's always just one more hurdle. Because as soon as you make it over one, guess what? As soon as you finish school, you've got to study. As soon as you finish studying, you've got to work. As soon as you work, you've got to get promoted. You've got to find a partner. All these hurdles, they don't stop coming. And I'm not yet in my 60s, 70s, 80s, but I can bet that if I had to speak to people in this room who are, there are hurdles still coming. And if I could just set myself up for retirement, I could be happy. If I could just do this before this happens. And it just is a never-ending thing, this chase, this endless pursuit of happiness. I think it's a good thing to have ambitions and to have goals. But here's the thing. These things that that are going to bring you happiness, they've got a sly way of making themselves, of putting themselves, should I say, onto your center stage. And so if you're someone who is a Christ follower, you will consider yourself a Christian, you know, that's the general sort of picture. Now, you might have more compartments, and maybe you don't have compartments. This is a guy way of thinking probably. But I know I have compartments, and I've got my family, and I've got my church, and I've got my finances, and I've got this, and I've got that, and the next thing. That's the way my brain works. And, and in the center, we've got God who just is over those things, who just is in all of those things, who just hopefully bleeds into every single compartment of our lives. But you know what starts to happen is, is that happiness, that's just that next hurdle you have to get through, ends up shifting from the side to the center. And God shifts from the center to the side. And as soon as I can just get an upgrade for my phone, I can actually start to really, you know, And you know what? That becomes the thing that then keeps you awake at night. That becomes the thing that that consumes you. When I can just have this. When am I going to get this thing? And the next thing you know, God shifted way off center. We're all facing stuff now. Every single person in this room has things that are fighting for center stage in your life. And for some of you, it is a person. And for some of you, it is stuff. And for some of us, it's work. And for some of us, it's other things. But all of us have got things that are fighting to get onto the center of our stage, the center of our hearts. I think if we had to be honest, and again, people don't say this really out loud, but if we had to be honest, the majority of us in this room If I had to say, here's a hundred thousand rand. For you, you'd think that could solve a lot of problems. That could clear a bit of debt. That could get me out of something. That could get me into something. That could help me to start that thing I've always wanted to start. That could get me that that thing that I've always wanted to get. A lot of us, now, now there's nothing wrong with money. And the Bible doesn't speak against money in any way. Except for the love of money. 
Money is neither here nor there. But so many of us, if we had to come down to it, would say that what we're working for is just a little bit more money. And once we have that, we know that we can get those things that we want to get. A lot of us, I think, would believe that money and more stuff would solve most of our issues and bring a degree of happiness into our lives. I know that I thought that. I, I, when we bought our first car, new, I thought, whoa, this is amazing. I never thought I'd do this. I thought I'd be driving um, my Jetta for the rest of my life or whatever it was I was driving at that stage. And it was just a massive thing. And I thought, whoa, this is exciting. And you get to the showroom floor and they put this like weird bow on it. And, um, and you kind of like, okay, uh, it's new. And you get in and you drive out the showroom floor and you're in another car. That gets you from here to there. Huh. Okay. I mean, it's more comfortable. Uh, but I definitely didn't feel the sense of, ah, this is so fantastic. And I remember moving from a Nokia. Does anyone remember the 3310? <laughs> remember that thing? Hey, that had like green and black screen. That had polyphonic ringtones. I mean, we were talking state of the art. That was like the phone that started coming out with no aerial. Okay, that was like, whoa, where's your aerial? No, it's inside the phone. You wouldn't understand, okay? It was, this is an amazing phone. And then you, you go from there sometimes to like a Blackberry or something, and it's like, ah, this is so exciting. And then you figure it all out, and you've got another phone. Um, and that's the nature of stuff, haven't you found? As much as it is exciting to want that new thing or this, this thing that you want to get, it very rarely, if ever, leads to any kind of lasting satisfaction or happiness. I, I found some articles, and there are not countless, but there are very many of them. But I'm going to read a couple. And you know what these are? These are lottery winners. Can I read some of these things to you? I find them fascinating because you need to put yourself in these shoes, uh, maybe. I think it could help. Let me, firstly, Callie Rogers, 175,000 pounds. Okay. That's about 25 million rand. Okay, so you could, you could win that. That's a lot of money. Uh, it's probably a bit more than that now. Anyone do with 25 million rand here? Anyone? I mean, really. She was, in 2003, she was 16 years old. She became the second youngest, youngest winner ever in the UK lottery. This is what she did. She bought and decorated four homes... She spent liberally on vacations, cars, gifts, drugs, and breast implants. Today in 2009, which is not today, but then, in 2009, Rogers was 22, bankrupt, a single mom living with her mother and driving a Volkswagen Golf. There's nothing wrong with a Volkswagen Golf. I'm just telling you what she went to, okay? And she had a job as a maid and had twice attempted suicide. Now, hang on a second here. Someone just gave you a check for 25 million rand. And just a few years later, that's where, you know what the quote, one of her famous quotes for after that, hopefully now that it's all gone, I can find some happiness. Isn't it amazing that with all of that, guess what she was looking at? The next hurdle. Hey, hopefully when it's all gone, I can be happy. Are you kidding me? Once I get rid of the 25 million. I mean, that, that's the nature of stuff. There's another guy, William Post. He won $16.2 million. 
Okay, that's in the 160, 170, 180 million rands. Okay, that's a lot of money. Uh, the former circus cook was broke within one year because of lavish spending. He bought his own airplane without ever learning to fly. Bad investments and an ex who successfully sued him for a chunk of the fortune. He lost, he lost more too. His brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him. Post died in 2006 of respiratory failure. At the time, he was living on a $450 a month and food stamps. And a quote from him, I wish it never happened. It was a totally a nightmare. Isn't it funny how we look to these things to solve our problems? Billy Bob Harrell. Do you mind me reading these? You want two more? They are pretty, they're interesting, right? If nothing else. He won $31 million. I mean, really. It's like half a billion rand. In Texas, Harold, a hardworking family man of 47 years, was stocking shelves at Home Depot when he won his jackpot. He spent lavishly on art, antique cars, and real estate, and gave to his congregation and to almost everyone who asked for help. He also showered gifts on a young girlfriend. Today, which is back then, amid a divorce, depression, and financial ruin, Harold committed suicide in 99, less than two years after winning the lottery. A quote from him, winning the lottery is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Let's do one more. Come on. This guy made a lot of tabloids. He was known as the lottery lout. Okay. This is Michael Carroll. He won 15 million pounds, I think. Something like that. 15 million pounds, if I'm not mistaken. After pocketing his jackpot in 2002, the 26-year-old Carroll was quickly dubbed the lotto lout by the British press as he squandered away his winnings on drugs, jewelry, cars, and houses. He even held demolition derbies with his vehicles in his backyard, often setting them ablaze afterward. Today, Carroll has served two prison sentences and reportedly is broke. The quote from him, I regret the drugs. I can't say I regret the women. <laughs> Some things don't change with a lot of money. So isn't it amazing? And believe me, these are actually, I mean, I'm saying them lightheartedly. They are incredibly sad stories. And there's not a few of them. There's a lot of them. It's very rare for people who come into a lot of money to actually come out of it any happier than they went in. Because there's something that God's put inside of us in the heart of man that is a desire to work and to get fulfillment from work. And so we all think, well, if I can just not work, well, that'll be the happy place for me. But you know what? That's a recipe for depression, and that's a recipe for, for an aimless existence because we weren't designed like that. We are designed and fulfilled by the work that we do and by earning and by giving and by sowing and by reaping and all these things they add. So, so these shortcuts, these pursuits of happiness that we sometimes wish we could do, I want to say to you, don't wish that you could have all the money you want to solve all your problems. Maybe you aren't these guys, and maybe you would make better decisions than these guys. But take my word for it. This money doesn't solve problems. Even though we've proven it over and over again, we still believe that the stuff on the other side of the hurdle makes us happy. We need to redefine what happiness and wealth are. And the Bible's given us a new definition of wealth in that passage that I just read, that actually unlocks spiritual growth and keeps God at the center. And this is that 
portion of the verse that I've just taken there, true godliness with contentment is itself great gain or great wealth. True godliness with contentment. The Bible doesn't often give formulas for things. But this one is one you can take and you can apply as a formula as a one plus one equals two. True godliness plus contentment equals great gain or wealth. Those two things will keep God at the center of your life. Godliness. Honoring God out of our love for Him. That's it. We don't do it out of duty. We don't do it out of some sort of obligation. We need to just get something done. We need to, we have to go to church or we're going to feel guilty or someone's going to phone us and ask us why we were in a church. We have to give in the offering because the bucket's coming around and I don't want to be that person who doesn't put anything in. We, we don't operate like that. Godliness is honoring God out of our love for Him. The things we do the guys serving on holiday club, the guys teaching, the guys cooking, the guys, all that kind of thing is, is an example of this. It's honoring God out of our love for Him. Putting His kingdom first before ourselves. The guys who prayed tirelessly behind the scenes for holiday club. Contentment. Being at peace or satisfied with the season and stage you are in. You see, it's not always looking to the next hurdle. It's saying, this is where I am. Do we need to think of the future? Yes, I think that's a wise and a prudent thing to do. I think we need to start thinking about what's coming up down the, or down the road to meet us. We don't ignore the future and say, well, maybe it's never going to happen. Or if it does happen, I'm sure God will sort me out in it. No, no. We need to be wise in the way we deal with things. But... We can be at peace or satisfied with the stage we're in. How many of you know that having young kids, it's difficult to be content sometimes? Because you just want them to get a little bit older. So they can just walk. So you don't have to carry them everywhere. They're getting heavy. And then they can walk and you say, oh, this is a bad idea. I wish they couldn't walk anymore. But maybe when they're older and they can look after themselves and they won't pull down things because they don't know what they're pulling down, then that's a better stage. And then they do that. But then they also start climbing things. And then they climb higher and higher. And, oh, okay, maybe when they're bigger and they fall and they won't break anything, that'll be better. No, no, no. It's to be content with the stage that you're in. To say, this is where my kids are at. I need to be okay with this stage. I'm not wishing for the next stage. I'm not living in tomorrow and not even acknowledging what, what's happening in today. This is the job I'm in now. I don't work poorly because I I'm actually want to be over there. And when I'm over there, I'm going to work really hard. No, no. This is the stage you're in. You must work hard here. I'm going to give. I'm going to sow generously into people's lives. As soon as I start earning some decent cash, I'm going to start doing that. No. This is the season you're in. It's not a thing of, have I got enough to sow? No, no, no. There's biblical principles that go in place before anything else. And we do sow. We do invest. No matter what stage or season we're in. This is making sense. To be content is not an easy thing. Not for any of us, but it's something which is great wealth. Can you imagine the wealth in that? To honor God out of your love for Him and be content and satisfied with the stage you're in. Doesn't it make you just want to take a deep breath and go, oh, I actually want that. I'm tired of just rushing for the next thing every time. I'm tired of living for that thing that's coming down the road and never seems to get to me. 
I want to just, I'm okay. This is where I'm at. This is where God's put me. This is what God's given me. Let me be faithful with this. So, what do you do when you take stock of your own life and you realize, maybe God has drifted off the center stage somewhat. Maybe he has gone a little bit to the sides. What do you do then? The first thing, I'm not sure that I put this here. I don't think I did. The first thing, if you take stock and you realize that this is something you need to adjust in your own life, is to know yourself. Know the warning signs. I've got my own warning signs. Would you like to hear some of them? You just want to look down on me, don't you? (laughs) This is when I know that God is slipping off center in my own life. These are my tells. I become critical. Generally, I become critical of people or videos that I watch or people's motives or that sort of thing. I just become more critical than I normally am. Another thing that happens, I find I give in to temptation, which I used to be able to resist. Things that I'd sort of become okay with, you know, and, and temptations are like that. They go in circles and hopefully you go up. Hey, it's never or it's rarely chopped off and it's dealt with. Sometimes you deal with things. And if you've got like, let's say, for example, an anger thing, you can deal with it. But it doesn't ever completely leave you. But you'll deal with it again and you'll deal with it better. And you'll deal with it better. And you'll deal with it better. And then you'll deal with it worse. But then you'll deal with it better. And, uh, and that's just the nature of dealing with these things. But I find for me that I'll give into temptation that, oh, man, I've dealt with this stuff. Why am I going through this nonsense again? And, and, and you take a step back like that. Your old nature starts to rear its head. That's what I find. I find that I can, I can, I'm more prone to being upset or angry. Uh, old habits uh, become more appealing. Things you used to do, things maybe you used to watch or things you used to play. Those things that, that you've dealt with, and they, but they, they somehow become okay again. And then you, you, you need to know your own self. These are my things. You compromise things that used to be solid. Just a little bit. And you know what? Those are all little tells that something's not right here. That somewhere along the line, this picture of God in the center is like doing this. And other things are doing that. And then, you know, you start to become a person you don't really like or want to be or recognize. And other people are like, what's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with me. What's wrong with you? Um, you know, because it's just things, things just happen like that. And you know what? It's a slow and it's a gradual thing. But be aware of it. I don't know what your signs are. Maybe your thing is, everyone knows, when you get home and you kick the dog, that's when, okay, God's, God's drifted off the center of your stage. Uh, whatever it is for you, but know your stuff. That's what I'm saying. Be aware of your tells. Be aware of your signs. The second thing we need to do, if you take stock and God does seem to be drifting, is something called recalibrating or realigning. I don't know if Rian's in the house here. Is Rian here today? Okay. This is, now, I hope your scale doesn't say that when you get on. The definition of calibrate. Now, this is a very technical definition, although it is short. So I'm going to ask you to just bear with me as I read this. To calibrate something. To correlate the readings of an instrument with those of a standard in order to check the instrument's accuracy. 
It sounds technical, but it makes a lot of sense. Because how do you know that a scale is telling you that one kilogram is one kilogram? How would you possibly know that unless that scale was calibrated to a standard when it was made at the factory? How would you know that your speedometer was registering 100 kilometers per hour? That's why there's a little bit of grace on speedos, because there's no ways that they are all 100% the same. So they've got to give you a little bit of flexibility there, because yours might say 100 and his gun might say 105, uh, or whatever it might be. And so there's a little bit, but, but at the factory, you calibrate your speedo, your needle, must calibrate to that of a standard so that we know that everyone's 100 of this kind of car is 100 of this kind of car. And so calibrating instruments is a very important thing. And we need to do that as well. Having God off-center is like having a car with unaligned steering. Now, not all of you drive, but you need to take my word for it. It's irritating. Okay, when your steering is unaligned and you let go of the wheel and you're driving straight, don't do that. I don't recommend it. But if you had to do it, your car would veer very slightly to one direction or the other. It would go left or right. And, uh, that's, and, and when you're driving a long distance and it keeps pulling, you know, you find like after a while your arms start to get a little bit like, like, like uh, what do you say, like tense almost. Like you're fighting your steering wheel and you can't work out why because you're just going in a straight line. Um, but it's because your car keeps wanting to do this and you have to keep on keeping it on center. To have a car with unaligned steering is not a fun thing to do. And having God off-center is like that. There's constant resistance when God is off-center. There's a constant fight within yourself. There's a constant angst inside of you when God is off-center. And the other thing that it does, and people who do tires, Darby can probably vouch for this. If I'm telling the truth, if I'm not, don't say anything. But if your wheels are unaligned, it, it doesn't wear well on your tires. It wears your tires unevenly and in an unbalanced way, which is not a great thing to do. And it does, you know what, when, when God is off center stage, there's an unnecessary amount of wear and tear that happens in your life as well of trying to fight. There's this resistance and God isn't like there. You know you're out of sorts and you know you haven't had any kind of time with him or you haven't thought about him for the last couple of weeks. And you can just feel it. There's an unnecessary amount of wear and tear that's occurring in your own life. So what's the proven standard we can use to calibrate our thinking? I think this is an obvious thing. You know, nine times out of ten when you ask a question in church, the answer is the Bible or Jesus. So in this case, it's the Bible. Okay. If you want a standard to calibrate your life back with, it must be the Word of God, the Bible. And the Bible does have a lot to say about keeping your relationship with Jesus at the front and center. But a lot of these verses are much easier to read than they are to apply. Can I read just a couple of them? Maybe just two. Oh, there's realigning. That's why I asked if Rian was here. Okay. Matthew 6.33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything that you need. That's a calibrating verse because when you're off, when you're out of sorts with God, when God is off center stage in your own life, that verse should bring you right back to the center. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put the first things first. Do the stuff you need to do before you do the other stuff. 
and he'll give you everything that you need. There's another great verse. It's a whole passage, but just this verse from it. In John 15, verse 5, Yes, I'm the vine. This is Jesus speaking. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, our relationship with God is central to what I'm actually saying this morning. Keeping God at the center of things. Seek his kingdom first. He's the vine. Listen, there's conditions in John 15, 5. That is not an assumed thing. That is not an automatic thing that God is going to... Listen here. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me, it is possible not to. But those who do, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in God. Remain in relationship. Remain or, or keep God at the center of your life. The solution that realigns God to the center of our lives is simple, but it's not easy. Go back to the basics of spending time walking and talking with God every day. Let me tell you something. After a week like this week, I'm preaching to myself first. Okay, because in a week like this, you feel like you feel justified in not spending time with God because you're doing so much for Him. Lord, what happened there? But that's not the right thing to do. And it's not only not the right thing to do, it's just not healthy. It, it unaligns me. It creates an unease in me. But remain in Him. And when He remains in you, the fruit that you bear is significant. So what does it look like for you? What does it look like for you to be in relationship? What does it look like for you to maintain relationship? What does it look like for you to keep God at the front and center? Can I read you some things that apply to me at certain times? This is not a list of things that I do every single day, okay? I wish they were, but they're not. But I want to read some things because I think there's a very narrow view of what this keeping God at the center is. Does it mean I need to have an, a 30-minute quiet time every morning? If I don't do that, then I'm not on par with God. How does this work? Um, there's a very narrow view there. And so I want to give you some things that I will do at various times. And uh, believe me, I'm not trying to impress you. On my absolute best days, I try and start my day in God's presence and in God's word. I can read a portion of scripture. Sometimes I journal. I love going for a walk and thinking through what I believe God is speaking to me about. I read Christian books. I read non-Christian books. I can do a Bible study of some sort with a commentary or a study Bible or something like that. Listen to a podcast. Watch a DVD of ministry. These are things that I can do on my best days. Some of those things. Again, you need to know your own, you need to know yourself in terms of what it's going to take for you to put God back on center stage. And for some people, uh, more the intellectuals among us, Bible study and that sort of thing just floats your boat. Well, for me, that doesn't. Me, I like to walk and talk. Me, I like to listen to podcasts. Me, I like to read uh, books and that sort of thing and articles and those sorts of things. But everyone's got a different way of connecting with God. But the point is not the way that you connect with God. 
The point is that you are connecting with God and you're spending time with Him and in the Word of God. I don't get encouragement from our culture. I don't know if you've noticed this. You probably have. Our culture encourages us to obsess only with the aspects of our lives that are above the ground line, those things that are seen, the things that other people can see, uh, things that we can touch and feel. That's what our culture encourages us to, to be all about. And many of them are good things, things like homes and cars and your physical appearance, uh, your social calendar, physical health, uh, those sorts of things. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that most people and many of us focus on those things exclusively, the things that are above the ground line at the expense of the things that are below the ground line, the things like spending time with God. Prioritize the most important relationship you can have. That's my encouragement to you this morning, and it's my encouragement to myself as well. Prioritize the most important relationship that you can have. Make it the center stage. The message today has been simple. And the question that goes out is, is anything stealing your center stage? Is anything shifting God from the middle of you? And I I would imagine that many of us would have realized that somehow God seems to have shifted just slightly, for some of us radically, off center. So the key there is to recalibrate to find those ways of realigning yourself with God and being back in relationship with God. Can we stand? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything. I'm going to assume that it's more than just me in the room who needs to recalibrate. But Father, Lord, we lift ourselves to you. God, your word says it and we believe it. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Father God, we need your help this morning to help us to recalibrate. You can't force us to spend time with you. But Father God, we do want to. Lord, we earnestly want to spend time with you, to seek your face. Father God, we want to speak to you. We want to connect with you. Lord, that intimacy that we once knew, We want that again. We pray for ourselves here in this room, Lord, who can acknowledge and admit that you have shifted off center. Father God, we want you front and center. We want you to be the governing force for our decisions. We want you to be the one through whom we filter everything that we do. Not just the big things, not just the scary things, not just the crises in our life. But our decisions, Lord God, let let us filter them through your word, the standard. Lord God, help us to seek you. Help us to seek your righteousness. Help us to live like this. Lord, help us to understand this new concept of wealth, godliness and contentment. Lord, I pray for the people in this room, Lord Jesus, who are battling with the stage that they're in right now. Lord, I thank you that this too shall pass. Lord, I thank you that every bad stage has an end. 
And I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death till the end, Lord God. Father, that you will never leave us or forsake us in the middle of our trials. But God, you are faithful to walk us to the end of them, to see us through. We thank you for that, Lord God. Father, for those of us who are battling with the season that we're in, give us strength, give us patience, give us endurance, give us a steadfastness, Lord God, that rests and stands on your word and your word alone, not on our circumstances, not on the stuff we can see, not on the stuff that people are telling us, but on the stuff we know to be true, on your word In Jesus' name, give us a steadfastness. Let's just keep our eyes closed because there might be people in here and when you think about your life and that picture of God being at the center and and everything else being around and, and, and thinking of what's driving you, maybe Jesus doesn't even feature. Maybe God isn't even a factor on your pie chart. In your compartments of your life, maybe, maybe your job is at the center. And maybe that's the way you've liked it up to this point. Maybe your family has always been at the center of your chart. And that's the way you thought it should have been. Maybe Jesus never featured at all. I want to make one thing very clear today. And that is that your life is centered around something or someone. Don't fool yourself and think that it's not centered around someone. The question you need to ask yourself is what or who it's centered around. Jesus once asked this question. He said, what does it help you if you get everything you always wanted, but you lose your soul? What does it help if every hurdle you've strived for, what does it help if everything that's been at the center of your life, pulling for all your attention, if you get all of those things and at the end of time you stand before God and you've got nothing? You could be in that space this morning. You could be setting yourself up for success financially in your job. But you know that even if you had to get it, you still wouldn't be right with God. What's the point then? I want to pray for you. I want to join hands with you. I want to to encourage you to take God's hand because God is not like stuff which is fleeting. God isn't like things that just are here and then gone. God is eternal. He is solid. He is dependable, He's trustworthy, He's faithful, He's consistent. God will be there. If there is anyone here, and this morning you want to put your faith in God. This morning you say, I want that. I want God to be the center of my life. I'm tired of it being me. I'm tired of it being my job. I'm tired of it being anything else. I want it to be God this morning. Then I want to pray for you. Because, you know, it's as simple as that. Most of the people in this room at one stage or another have prayed this prayer and have come to the end of themselves and said, I've tried everything I can try and nothing seems to fit the center. And then we found God and it was a perfect fit. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. Take that step. 
Dear Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for showing me that you need to be at the center of my life. I want that this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for dying so my sins could be taken away, so that I could have new life. Give me new life. Let me be different. Let me be new. Let me be clean. Let me start over this morning. Forgive me and make me your child. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name.